things that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. When his division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. How can I know this, Zechariah asked the angel, for I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them. Then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was making signs to them and remained speechless. When the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace from among the people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. 
He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, Well, how can this be, since I have not had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative, Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. In those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside me. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. And Mary said, My soul praises the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Because the mighty one has done great things for me, and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. And Mary stayed with her about three months. Then she returned to her home. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she had a son. Then her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy, and they rejoiced with her. When they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother responded, no, he will be called John. Then they said to her, well, none of your relatives has that name. So they motioned to his father to find out what he wanted him to be called. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they were all amazed. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. Fear came on all those who lived around them and all these things were being talked about throughout the hillside country of Judea. All who heard about him took it to heart saying, what then will this child become? For indeed, the Lord's hand was with him. Then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. 
He has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. He has given us the privilege, since we have been rescued from the hand of our enemies, to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew up and became spiritually strong, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. The first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him, and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room available for them. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in, in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly, there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem to see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. The word of the Lord. Well, thanks so much, Scott. Love hearing you read. And uh, we certainly got a, a lengthy passage today, right? Some of you who have ADD, your minds wandered off to other things, I'm sure. And 
The nice part about a passage that that's, that's that long is that you have time to take that little journey and you come back and we're still reading. So you can just jump right back in with us and make the journey again. Uh, I have heard many times that the Sunday morning encounter, oftentimes for people, is the only encounter they have with the Word of God. And so I'll make no apologies for reading a lengthy text and just tell you that I'm not going to preach it line by line. So you will get out in time for Christmas. So you don't have to worry too much about that. Um, it's Ugly Sweater Day, if you're wondering why everybody looks so good. I am, Scott, a little offended that on Ugly Sweater Day you wore a Red Hill t-shirt. I see a few of them around. I'm like, okay, we'll work on it. We'll try and put together some better swag for everybody that looks a little bit nicer. Um, I found out this morning that I cross-dressed, so that's an exciting thing because we have these uh, beautiful velour tracksuits, and the zipper on this thing is on the wrong side, which apparently means it's a woman's jacket. But I think it looks nice on me, so I'm going to keep it on. So, uh, you know, it, it's just that kind of a day, I guess. It's, it's ugly uh, sweater day and uh, cinnamon roll day. If you didn't get one, feel free to jump up and grab one. You're not going to be a distraction to me. And we certainly don't want those to go to waste because they are fantastic. Um, We're continuing our Advent series. You'll remember last week we were in the book of Genesis. We read a pretty lengthy passage last week as well. And we're gonna be trying to cover large sections of scripture to give a big picture of the whole story of Christmas. Everything from creation all the way to the vindication of Jesus's claims through the resurrection. And this morning we're getting the birth story. We probably are the only church in North America today that is giving you Luke 2, two weeks before Christmas Day, and we're having service on Christmas Day. So I feel like that's going to be like a bonus crown or something, or like maybe a small jewel in the crown that I get to give to Jesus on uh, Christmas. It's just a joke. You know, he's going to relax a little bit. I really like the gospel of Luke. Luke's gospel is personally my favorite gospel. I like the way that Luke begins things, and I like the way that he lays things out. It's very linear, and that's the way that my brain kind of processes things, so I appreciate that. And this morning, we're going to kind of hit some of, just some of the peaks of this story. There is more here. There's enough here, I should say, that you could spend all of eternity just treasuring, investigating, and learning from it. We're not going to do that. And um, there's enough here that you could spend the whole Christmas series just in these passages and just in these pages. And my hope for you is that the Holy Spirit, as the word was uh, spoken to you this morning, read to you, and as it's preached to you, will stir some things up inside of you. And as you go through your own Christmas season, as you go through your own Christmas devotions, as you open up God's word for yourself, and hopefully even as you read it on Christmas morning as a family, that some new things and some fresh joy and some new inspiration um, seizes you on a soul level. So I want to just kick things off by saying that Luke wrote this to someone named Theophilus. Theophilus means lover of God, and there's some debate as to whether or not Theophilus was a specific individual or just generally lovers of God. For our purposes, it doesn't really matter because he also uh, enumerated the specific purpose for which the whole gospel was being written. He says in verse 4, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. This is incredibly important for us. 
Because we don't have a fanciful religion. We don't have a religion that requires blind faith. We don't have a religion that is baseless. There are uh, some who will mock Christianity and say, yes, instead of worshiping the God of heaven, I worship the flying spaghetti monster in the sky. Well, there's absolutely no basis for the flying spaghetti monster in the sky. But Luke makes an audacious claim here. Not that you should be certain of the things that we instructed you. That's not the claim that he makes. That's not the purpose of the gospel, that you should be uh, certain of the things about which we instructed you, but that because of the way he's going to lay things out in an orderly and an ordered fashion, you should know the certainty of those things. It's not just that those things are certain, but the very claims about them are themselves certain. It's not just that everything that's written is certain, but the way that it's laid out, the specific claims that can be investigated are so solid and so sure. Luke says, I'm writing this so that you can have absolute and total confidence that what you're reading is the truth. That is so important because the claims of Christianity are absolutely audacious. They're absolutely incredible that anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. People might ask me or might ask you, well, what about a person who commits horrendous crimes, harms children, murders people, goes to jail, facing death row, and on death row, actually legitimately repents of their sin and believes in Jesus, that Jesus alone can make them right with God, surrenders their life, limited in scope and time though it may be, surrenders their life to God. Can that person be saved? And the good news for you is, yes, that person can be saved. The worst of the worst of the worst of the worst can be saved. This book was written specifically so that you and I could have confidence about the claims of Jesus. The claim of Jesus is this, my life, my body, my blood, broken and spilled for all humanity, that anyone who believes will be saved. Anyone and everyone who believes. Because if the worst of the worst cannot be saved, then the Bible is not true, and you and I can have no confidence. No confidence. My wife was sharing the gospel with a Muslim friend of hers, and and they were comparing religions. And the Muslim friend of hers was remarking about how wonderful it must be for followers of Jesus, for Christians, to be able to have absolute confidence that they will spend eternity in heaven. Because, you know, Islam means struggle, and Muslim means one who struggles. It's someone who enters the struggle in hopes that their God will show mercy to them. You and I don't have to live with that kind of fear. We don't have to live with that lack of confidence. We don't have to live with a baseless hope, never knowing for sure where we stand with a holy God who rightly punishes sin because of Jesus. And Luke, at the outset of his gospel, lays out for Theophilus, lays out for me, and lays out for all of you this one simple true claim. I'm writing so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed, the things that you are being instructed about today, the things that you will read and hear from God's word today, you can know the certainty of them, the certainty of those things. That's just a wonderful gift to us. The way back to God, it's important for us to remember, the way back to God is shut. We talked about this last week, 
that when God kicks Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, he places a holy warrior and a holy weapon. Remember, the angel is there guarding it, and there's a flaming, whirling sword of fire that's also there guarding it, meaning there's no pathway back for mankind into the garden. The way's shut. We can't get back. So God shows up on the scene here in Luke chapter 1 with some pretty incredible stuff. I'm going to start in, just read verse 17 to you again. Um, You'll remember that that the angel has visited Zechariah and has made these prophecies about the fact that Zechariah and his wife are going to be having a baby. Zechariah and Elizabeth are going to be having a baby. And just like Abram and Sarah, they're uh, advanced in age. They got no hope and no shot. They've given up on the idea. And they also, Zechariah at least, has some doubts. It says in verse 17, speaking about the child that will be born, he'll go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Part of the story of Christmas, part of the story of the birth of Jesus, a significant part in the gospel of Luke at least, is the, uh, the uh, conception, the pregnancy, the birth, and the purpose of John the Baptist. Is John the Baptist not John the Southern Baptist because it wasn't a uh, denominational affiliation for John. It was, in fact, a vocational uh, designation for John. He was a baptizer. He was one who stood out in the desert and he preached. He was described as a prophet of the Lord whose purpose was going to be in the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. What did God want when Jesus was about to come on the scene? He wanted people to get ready. He wanted people to be prepared for the arrival of Jesus. When we prepare for Christmas, we all at varying times... We'll put lights up on our house and decorations out in our yard and we'll take the tree that's outside and drag it inside, the lights that are inside and drag them outside. You know, we just do a whole flip-flop. We put all kinds of new decorations around. We decorate the spaces of worship that we're in. Some churches have a hanging of the green service where they actually, like during the worship gathering, will put out some of the decorations and hang like the fake, uh, it's not garland, but it's like, ferns that are just one long string, you know, like they'll actually hang those up during the worship service. Sometimes they have like decoration parties. We're going to outfit the worship space. Here we have people who do that for us. Thanks to them experience. We have people who operate that part of the thing for us and they get to decorate for us. We're making preparations Right? We're making preparations for all the, pa- the, the family that's going to come and visit us or that we're going to go and visit. And we cook food and we wrap gifts and we decorate the tree. There's all kinds of things that we do to get ourselves ready for the arrival of Christmas. Advent is about anticipation and about hope and about preparing ourselves for the arrival of Jesus. It's about preparing ourselves for his coming. That's really what we're talking about when we're talking about Advent. And in Luke's gospel, how does God say, I'm going to get people ready? He gets people ready. He wants a people who are ready. The way that he prepares them is a prophet with a message. That prophet who will go out into the desert, wear the weirdest clothes you ever heard of, talk about ugly sweater day, that's John the Baptist out there wearing some kind of nasty camel hair or something, eating bugs and honey, that's just how he lived, he was the original redneck, and and standing out there in the desert, he had just one central message, how is the Lord preparing his people? 
Here's how. John the Baptist standing in the desert saying, repent of your sins. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's how God prepares his people for the arrival of his son. Repent, 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 repent. That is what John the Baptist over and over and over and over again is preaching and proclaiming. And when people come out to get baptized by John the Baptist, because that's the cool thing to do, John the Baptist drops an atomic spiritual elbow on him. Who told you to flee from the the wrath that is to come? You guys are whitewashed tombs. Everything on the outside looks right, but the inside is dead. He was fearless. He was fearless, and he just had one central message. You can't fake this. I'll accept no imitations. I'll take nothing in its place. Repent of your sins. Repent of your sins. Repent of your sins. Jesus is coming soon. Repent of your sins. Verses 31 through 35, when when Gabriel's predicting Jesus' birth further down into this text, he says this, now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. By the way, just really quickly, I wanna say, when the angel shows up to speak to Zechariah, he freaks out and disbelieves. When the angel shows up to Mary, she's like, hmm, this is interesting because women by nature are braver than men are, I think, in moments like this. Men assume that there's a fight that's coming and maybe, maybe Mary assumed something else. I don't know for sure. But you're gonna conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary asked the angel, how can this be? Since I have not had sexual relations with a man. The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the son of God. Remember, that the way was shut to us. When we sinned, God cast Adam and Eve, God casts humanity out of the garden of Eden. And then he places an angel, this holy warrior, and a whirling, twirling, flaming sword that's just spinning around threateningly, I guess, protecting that way, meaning no human being can come back that way. No human being can access Eden ever again. We were created for an endless, unbroken fellowship and friendship with God. Sin broke that. Sin destroyed that. The consequence is we are removed from the garden. This is why it's important for you to remember, for you to know with certainty Jesus was more than just a good person. He was more than just a perfect person. He has to be more than just a perfect person. If he's only a good person, then his access to God is just like our access to God, closed. Because even if he lives perfectly, he cannot undo the sin that was done in the garden. The consequence of that sin is humanity is cut off from access to God. Excuse me, to God. We can't 
undo the rebellion that, ga- that got us evicted in the first place. And additionally, although that person, should a person actually be able to live perfectly, just a regular human being who never sinned, that person, based on their own perfection, maybe they're acceptable to God, but that person can't do anything for you, and they can't do anything for me. Hi, Phoebe. (laughs) Excuse me. I'm two weeks in on this cold, guys. I feel like I'm on the last leg of the journey of the cold, and I hope that means a good thing. Um, Perhaps they could be acceptable to God, but they can't do anything for you or for me or for anyone else. Um, Bailey referenced this a little bit. This, in effect, would be like our efforts to create our own new covenant with God, which has been happening, by the way, since the Garden of Eden. In every generation of humanity, every type of person, every type of religion, thanks Drew, every type of irreligious person has been trying to create a new covenant in their own name with God. I had someone once come to me and say, I want to go to heaven, but I hate God and I hate Jesus. I said, well, you're going to have to create your own religion You're going to want to write a holy book to go along with it. And I recommend making it one of those religions where the only way you go to hell is if you apostate. You know, you apostatize from that religion. That that seems to be a good trap to keep people in the religion. Because you're going to have to create your own new covenant. You understand that God created the covenant with us. That's how it worked. God said, here's how the garden functions. We didn't negotiate with him about that. We weren't, we weren't in the garden and God said, I'm going to give you charge over the garden. And we were like, well, we'll take the east side. We don't want the west side. You know what I'm saying? That's the other side. That's where the gross animals live. So get somebody else to do that. It wasn't like God said, you can eat from any tree in the garden, just not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we were like, well, we're going to eat some of it, obviously. And we're just going to have to negotiate exactly. No, God sets the terms of the covenant. You know why? Because he's the creator. He's the one who made us. If you make a Lego toy, you can make that Lego toy do anything that you want it to do. And as much higher as you are than a Lego brick, God is exponentially, infinitely higher than you than that. He's just bigger than we can imagine. And he's the one who sets the terms of the agreement. Our problem is, is we like to be in charge of everything. We like to set the terms. And so we will begin then saying, well, God, I know you don't want me to do this, but I'm gonna go ahead and do this anyway, and I'm gonna need you to be okay with that. Or we'll say, I'll surrender part of my life to you, but I'm not giving you all of my life. Or we'll say, I'll show up to church, and that just needs to be good enough for you, God, because I think it's ridiculous to ask for anything else. Or we'll say, I'll give you money, but I'm not going to give you my heart. I'll give you time, but I'm not going to give you my family. I'll give you some of my stuff. I'll give you some of me. I'll give you some of my family, but if a better offer comes along, I'm certainly going to take that. And in the end, I guess I'm just going to have to hope that I'm good enough that God will accept me that my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. What is that, that that person in every person like them who has ever written up their own path back to the Father doing, they're trying to create a new covenant. We don't get to write the covenant with God. We don't get to be the ones who say, I know that I'm the one who broke it, but I'll tell you how I'm going to fix what I broke. Because in the end, we can't even keep those covenants. God closed Eden. And only God can open what God has closed. 
When God closes it, it's closed. Neither you nor I are big enough or strong enough to be able to grab the door and lift it up that we might be able to gain access again. The reason that God puts an angel there and a whirling, twirling, flaming sword there at the gate is to tell us you'll never make it back here on your own. Friend, you cannot get to God on your own. No matter how much money you give, no matter how much time you give, no matter how many worship gatherings you attend, no matter how many Christians exist in your family, no matter how much Bible you read, no matter how many hours you spend praying, no matter if you were to crawl across your knees, on your knees, across broken glass, on every inch of every continent, no matter if you were to give everything you own to the poor, you cannot create a new covenant. You cannot gain access back because God alone can open what God alone has closed. I want to look at Zechariah's prophecy. I think it's pretty fascinating. Verses 67 down through 79. Luke 1, such a long chapter. Henry Ford was once asked about customer input in the development of the Model T, and he famously said, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Right? Everybody is pretty familiar with that quote, I think. You know, He, he was asked, do you get customer input? He said, if I had given people what they wanted, they would have wanted faster horses. Then I was thinking to myself, well, what if God gave us what we wanted? Like, what would we have? And the answer, generally speaking, I mean, obviously, we have some specific requests. Sometimes we make some really good prayer requests. But gen like the general notion of humanity, praying to God, what are the things that we would get? And mostly we'd have a little bit more money. We'd have a little bit better health and a little bit longer lives, right? Which I think maybe is why the prosperity gospel is so attractive because it's what we're already praying for anyway. Like God, just a little bit more money. I don't need to be rich. I just need a little bit more than what I have. And it's not like, you know, it's not like I need to be an Adonis or something. I just want to be a little healthier than what I am. And I don't want to live forever, but I don't want to die today either. You know, I mean, like, can we find a happy medium in here somewhere? Just a little bit longer life, just a little bit better health, just a little bit more money. And it's important for us to remember, and we're going to see in Zechariah's prophecy, it's important for us to remember Jesus' life and ministry were about rescuing people who were slaves to sin, redeeming them and setting them free to love and serve God without fear. And he was a disappointment to everybody who wanted something else. God in the flesh was a extreme disappointment to everybody who wanted him to be something else. People were frustrated by it. People were disgusted by it. People were angered by it. People became dismissive because of it. People were confused about it. People were like irritated and frustrated beyond belief. Here's what Zechariah has to say. He says, starting in verse 68, blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Listen to this. He has given us the privilege, since we've been rescued from the hand of our enemies, he's given us the privilege to serve him without fear, in holiness, in righteousness, in his presence all our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, 
For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the Lord's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus, by becoming the ultimate and final sacrifice, atoned. That means he satisfied the holy demands and he overcame the holy consequences of sin. He made it right. And he opened a new way for humanity to experience endless, unbroken fellowship and friendship with God. That's what Advent is all about. That's what Christmas is all about. That's what the birth of Jesus is all about. That's why we take the Lord's Supper. We take the Lord's Supper and, and weekly from the stage we're reminded that we take this, Jesus said, as a proclamation of my death. That on the night Jesus was betrayed, the scriptures tell us, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is being broken for you. And in the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The old covenant was the law and the prophets. The old covenant was this. You have to do these things to have any kind of access to God. The old covenant was God's mercy to humanity. It was some kind of a way back. It was delivered by God to humanity. There's no negotiating about the 10 commandments. It wasn't the 10 suggestions. It wasn't the 10 starting points for how we're going to relate to one another. It was the 10 commandments. You must obey the law if you want to have access to me. Jesus shows up on the scene as God in the flesh and says, through my broken body and my spilled blood, I'm opening up a new way back. And, and he told his disciples he was gonna do it. Remember in John 13, he's like, guys, you're gonna have all kinds of problems in the world, but don't be afraid, I overcame the world and I'm going away from you but you know where I'm going and you know how to get there. And doubting Thomas, the great doubting Thomas says, Lord, we don't know the way, we don't know where you're going and how are we supposed to get there? Thomas is saying the truth of humanity all along since being evicted from the garden. We don't know where Eden is, we don't know the way to it, we don't know how to get there and even if we got there, what are we supposed to do about the angel and the flaming sword? And Jesus says to him, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, I'm the only access that you have. Anyone who would come to the Father must come by me. You understand, this is what the Christmas story is about. It's not about the little baby in a manger and the hope that it represents and the mystery. And It is those things, but it's the showing up of God in the flesh who himself would fulfill the law, all the requirements of the law, and then through his death would fulfill the requirements of the sacrifice, and then through his resurrection would have all of his claims vindicated by the Spirit of God. Vindicated, proved true, so you can have confidence in the things that you believe. And what is it precisely that you must believe if you are to be saved? You must believe upon Jesus. You must believe that he has created access for you to God, that you cannot create your own covenant, 
that you cannot be the writer of a new path, that you cannot be the originator of a new trail that will somehow backdoor your way into heaven. This is why it's imperative for us to be preachers and proclaimers of the good news because it's for everyone who will believe. It's for everyone who will put their faith in Jesus. It's for all of us. It's for any of us. There are absolutely no requirements for you to meet. There's nothing you have to do except believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's it. That's all that there is because God himself came down in the flesh, just as Bailey read from Luke chapter two, verses five through 11. I like the way that Martin Lloyd-Jones says it. He divested himself of the eternal insignia of his glory. Those are big words. I feel like they belong like in the Declaration of Independence or in the King James Bible. He divested himself of the eternal insignia of his glory and became one of us. We could not get back to the garden We don't know where you're going. We don't know the way to get there. And even if we found the path, we don't know how to gain access. That's where we were. That's where humanity, apart from Jesus, still remains today. We don't know where to go. We don't know what to do. All that we're left with is sort of a Disney kind of hope. It's based on nothing in reality. But it makes us feel a little bit better. And friends, if if that's all you've got, if that's all you've got, and I would say it's better than nothing, but only by about 0.1%. Because in reality, it's still nothing. It's still nothing. But Advent tells us the truth. Jesus came. He came. Chapter 2 and verse 10. The angel who's speaking to the shepherds There's enough to unpack just in the fact that the angel comes out to the shepherds. There's enough to unpack there. You can mirror David as a shepherd. You can talk about Jesus in the future, who's the good shepherd. You can talk about the fact that we're all like sheep who've gone astray. You can talk about the fact that that the angel comes to the lowest of the low in society, that they become the first evangelist. There's all kinds of things that you could say. But I want to say this. The angel said to them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid for look. I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. I hope now that you understand what the good news is. Access was closed. Eden was off limits. There's no way for us to get back to endless, unbroken fellowship and friendship with God. We could not do it for ourselves. So God came and did it for us through the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of his son, Jesus. That is the good news. And I hope that you understand the only necessary ingredient in salvation is Jesus. That's the only necessary ingredient. Everything else is just the add-in. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation has been provided. It's like a gift that's bought and paid for and wrapped and sitting under the tree. What else does it need? Nothing. It's already a gift. It doesn't need a recipient. It's not sitting, the toys underneath the tree, the gifts underneath the tree at Christmas are not sitting there going, oh man, I really hope somebody plays with me. They're already gifts. Nothing has to be added to them to make them a gift. 
But for you to experience the joy of the gift, it must be received. It must be received. That's the necessary step for you to get the fullness of the experience, for you to get the fullness of joy. Jesus is the irreducible minimum. All who will may come. The imagery is beautiful in Scripture. It's not those whose lives are pretty good get made marginally better. It's those who lived in darkness. Upon them, a great light has shone. It's those who lived in fear who've been filled with courage. It's those who are blind who are made to see, those who are lame who are made to walk, those who are dead who have been raised. And in fact, death itself is given the death blow. That the final enemy is death. And Jesus himself has defeated it by resurrecting. This is what Christmas is about. And my hope for you this morning is that you have experienced that gift, that you're reminded this morning of that gift, that you're given courage once again to live it out, courage once again to celebrate the fact that Jesus would meet you exactly where you are. Remember, God has never blessed anyone anywhere except for exactly where they are. God has never used anyone anywhere except, except for exactly who they are. Who you are and where you are in this moment is exactly where God will meet you today. I'm gonna ask you to bow your head and to consider just for a moment whether or not you yourself have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the necessary ingredient for salvation. I wanna impress upon you that apart from him, the way is shut for you. There's no hope for you apart from Jesus. But because of what Jesus has done, he's created access even for you today. And all that remains is for you to receive the gift that he offers to you. All that remains is for you to place your faith in him. And you can do that even in this moment simply by praying something like this, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that that sin disqualifies me from endless, unbroken fellowship and friendship with you. I know that because of my sin, I can't get to you. Except, except for Jesus who made a way. And I believe that he made a way for me. Something just as simple as that. If you're here this morning and you prayed that or something like that, you want to give your life to Jesus this morning, would you just slip up your hands so that I can pray for you and encourage you? I'm not going to call you out or embarrass you in any way. I see you, bud. Anybody else? I want to be able to pray for you, help you begin that journey of faith. Yeah, anybody else? I see you, you can put it down. Yeah, anybody else? It's easy in the holiday season to get discouraged. Easy in the holiday season to feel like your life is a long way from the Norman Rockwell imagery. A long way from 
what you thought your family was gonna be and what you hoped your family was gonna be and what you hoped your Christmases would be like. It's wrapped up with wonderful memories and painful memories and sometimes a good bit of melancholy. And when we're honest and contemplative, oftentimes the pain of all that is pointed at our own selves. Can I just set you free from your own self today? Those of you who are followers of Jesus and just remind you that exactly who you are, exactly where you are, that's who Jesus came for. Not just the old version of you that needed to be saved, but the saved version of you that still is being sanctified. And that when you can't find anything good in yourself, you can be reminded that you're still loved and accepted because of who Jesus is and you can find all the good in him. If you have a prayer request, if you made a decision this morning, I wanna invite you to fill out a connection card and drop it in the offering box. I wanna encourage you to give generously today to help support the mission of our church, the church plants that we directly support and the missionaries around the world that we give to. I wanna invite you when the band comes back up to worship God with a full heart. However that looks for you, if that means kneeling in prayer, sitting in silence, raising your hands, talking to a friend, coming back to pray with me or Josh or with someone else, to be free this morning, to love God, to love those who are gathered around you, to celebrate him, to worship him. When you're ready, those of you who are followers of Jesus are invited to take the Lord's Supper. The elements are over in our hospitality area. The band will come back up soon. We'll lead us in some worship.